Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to this week's episode of Archer Producers, episode 118. I am one of your hosts, Sharon, alongside the man, the myth, the living legend and talent of all. This is Travis Crock. How are you today? I am glad to try and dance together with what's going on in the state this week. That's true. We are in, uh, of course, still suffering the ravages of the unknown virus of unspecified origin. Mm-hmm. Thank you very much. Sydney, ruling mm-hmm. Australia since 1788. Yep, 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 yep. Because then we couldn't decide to know was the capital, because then we're probably going to end up going into lockdown again because they are our sats. And they are mostly responsible for Canberra. Is, uh, you know, <laughs> really, the, walk, really, right. really the biggest <laughs> the biggest issue we're talking. Roads go in circles. It's very cold, but they do have corn and fireworks. So, you know. <laughs> <laughs> what you're yeah, about. yeah, yeah. Six one, half a dozen of the other successes. Now, um, podcast we coming on a little bit late. It's just been crazy busy. I am now working with a new company. I won't say who they are, just so that they have a little bit of identity and it is a little bit of mystique and mysticism about me. But um, it probably means I will be talking about more game stuff. There's you. There's a hint. That's all you need to know. But this week, our chain movie of the week is the wonderful classic, the genuine classic of The Great Escape from 1963, picked by Travis after last week's hurdle, four-hour hurdle of Hamlet. Um, we will be talking about, obviously we'll be spoilers for this because the finale of Loki season one just aired and we have both watched it, so we will throw up the spoilers for that and then we'll be time codes as we've been desperately trying to get into the habit of. Um, we are going to possibly talk a little bit about um, the Chris Pratt Tomorrow Wars. Travis went down memory lane for Mad Max 2. He also watched the new Marvel movie Black Widow. I um, took in a relatively new show that, uh, starring Alan Tudyk, Resident Alien. And, and I'll also finally get around to the Demon Slayer. I'm not going to let you bypass the fact, fact that I did get around to finally watching Destination Wedding. So, um, no, that, I'm, I'm, I, I can't hear that. What? Yes, I did watch Destination Wedding. And here's the thing. So you're talking yeah. about Indiana Jones 4? What? Uh, uh, that'll never happen. Um, Destination Wedding. I, I will have a quick chat about Destination Wedding. And here's the thing. It's not what you think it is. <laughs> Crypticism, ladies and gentlemen, that is a tease. So uh, we will find out what maybe at the end. Maybe it'll be, it'll be a quick. Uh, but I, 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 I'm not going to let that one go. Yeah. Right. Well, let's get straight on into our chain movie of the week, the 1963 classic war movie, The Great Escape. Um, quick note: you might notice. George's background looks fairly similar to my background. We're not in the same uh, way. We're certainly not in the same Pay no attention to a man behind the curtain. Yes. Uh, and the echo <laughs> and the fact, yeah, no. So we are certainly in back in the same room again this week. Before, um, <laughs> just in case anybody's wondering why things look a little bit different. Yeah. Um, natural disasters being what they are. Uh, <laughs> we are the show that even God can't cancel. <laughs> God knows he's trying. They yeah. said a fucking plague and it didn't stop these guys. <laughs> uh, 
The Great Escape. Um, yes. I actually couldn't remember if I'd seen this all the way through, and actually now I haven't watched it this week on Monday. Mm. I don't know if I ever had it, that the whole thing. Really? I don't think I realised. I'd forgotten how long this movie is. a three-hour movie. Um, and the first thing I think you notice about this film is the, the score. Oh, yeah. You know, that everybody, if you don't think you know... And it's like it's just the most one of the most you know, top five most memorable film scores of all time. I feel it was Jaws and The Godfather and James Bond. Uh, it instantly <laughs> takes you to this film. Yeah. Uh, what's it about? Allied prisoners of war plan several hundred of their number to escape from a German camp during World War Two. This is based on real events. Yeah. Um. And, and the film quite quite accurate. The start goes, yeah, we have combined some characters and compressed the timeline. But, you know, um, it is based on a real thing. It did happen. Um, it, it took over 600 prisoners over around a year of digging to actually um, to, to achieve what they, this happened, what the film's based on. Um, we have a bunch of allied prisoners who are mostly Air Force mm-hmm. in a Luftwaffe-run German community camp, and they are all committed to the idea of trying to escape. It's a great slide so that will be officer in charge says it is the duty of every officer to attempt to escape. Yes. In a way possible. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. They're they're kind of playing the stereotypes quite a bit with like the British are very, very stoic and gentlemanly in the way that nineteen sixties war movies portrayed them. The Scottish and Irish characters are stereotyped. The fact that Steve McQueen, one of the kind of easily cool characters of all time of cinema is the laid back American guy. And then, but it all kind of works. It does. And this is a strange film actually for me. Mm. Um, it's really a film of two halves, if you will. If you're, if you've not seen it, um, and you're curious. I'm not going to throw up spoilers. Uh, no, no, no. I'm not going to throw up spoilers for a 60 year old film. I think that's fair. If you haven't got around to it yet. Um, where this is where I think the fact's going to remind me that I hadn't seen this, or if I had seen this all the way through, my goodness, it must have been a very long time ago. Mm-hmm. So it's a film of two halves. I feel like the first half of the film is almost a comedy. It's, it's yeah, where yeah. a lot of jokes, like, you know, and for the first 20 minutes, I was ever going, this really uncomfortably reminds me of Hogan's Heroes. Yeah, yeah, and it's. It's very true because you do have kind of borderline slapstick comedy of where they're kind of pulling out the slats in the beds and one of them just jumps up and just... And this very British style of cutaway where the comedy action happens, the mo- the physical comedy happens, and then there's just that silence and for like three beats and then it cuts away. It's... It's so it's something that you'll always see in like if you go to any classic Norman Wisdom movies or Carry On movies, that's the style that that comedy is in, and it's like okay. And the theme song you just you just gave us a quick rendition. Do 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 do. It was it was that I'm doing it wrong. It's very comedic. It's lighthearted, uh, yeah. and all the way through, like and, it, and it's playing while they're being walked into the um, the cooler. Yeah, uh, which is essentially, um, you know, uh, solitary confinement. Solitary confinement. And you're like, solitary confinement ain't fun. No, um, no, it's not. Yeah, Especially they've been so like, okay, two weeks just in a room. Two weeks no. cooler. Yeah. Um, and, and it's been that very sort of fluffy, lighthearted tunes being played while they're walking in there. And I'm like, yeah. okay, this is really weird. 
mood setting. Yeah. Uh, in, in another film, um, you know, the being sensitive caller would probably be played as fairly sinister or or uh, no music at all. Like when Andrew Dufresne has to go into solitary confinement, it's just stark. This is lighthearted, and I. Yeah, I guess it kind of makes sense because of the way that the story goes. Of they go in there, there's you kind of get two two forms of conversation about the prison itself. They're, these pr- pr- prisoners of war are kind of essentially labelled as professional prison escapers. They're ones that have been in repeated prison escapes, and they uh, they're proud of it, and they're always going to try it. Is their duty. Um, Versus the Nazi side of it, where they're kind of like, "This is how we're doing it. This uh, we are we are a prison designed to stop people from getting out." And it's a bit of that to and fro. Like they instantly start trying to escape, and at the same time, the Nazis was like, "Yeah, you're not just going to be able to walk out because you put someone's coat on." But as the period of time that they're in the prison goes, that comedy feeling, that comedy music does. He they goes away for a long time. Yeah. You don't hear that tune again until probably towards mm. much later. And this is yeah. where the second half of the film takes a very different start path. And this is where I'm going to get into mm. 60 year old spoilers here. Yeah. Um, is I was sure I remembered Steve Moves Queen escaping at the end of the film. Um, and he doesn't. Um, and I didn't remember, like, Pierre Debbie's being fucking machine gunned. By, yeah. by by Nazis, um, <laughs> uh, you know, I just didn't, I didn't, I yeah, I completely somehow blacked that out of my memory. Mm. Um, that the second half of the film, or the last third, really, is actually very dark. Yeah, it's it's a manhunt movie, and it's not a positive one for pretty much everyone. Um, it's <laughs> it's really quite quite upsetting in a way, and. Yeah. And it was a weird one for me. I, I feel like I'm in here criticising a classic for the second show in a row. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I felt that was quite jarring for me, that your first half is played for laughs and then it turns into, as you sort of say, a fairly uh, a manhunt film, you know, um, and your characters are all sort of uh, shot-killed, a lot of them, in... Yeah. Fairly inauspicious circumstances about a great deal of ceremony. Yeah. Um, so it didn't necessarily ruin the film for me. It was just like, huh, I think I forgot all this happened. Um, and it's a weird juxtaposition of that first and second half. It's it's strange. I I actually kind of really appreciated it. I I liked it. I thought it worked well as a as a sto- excuse me storytelling uh, narrative tool. And I feel like it. Um, Particularly the the very last kind of five minutes of the movie where um, the kind of the pseudo self-appointed leader of the prisoners in the camp is told of how many of the escapees have been shot and killed. And he is obviously shaken by the number, especially um, when he learns that they were just... <laughs> Basically taken out into a field and just shot um, by the, the, I think it was the SS that were responsible for those ones. Um, And then you get, again, spoilers for a 62-year-old movie, um, you get um, Steve McQueen's character comes back in 
and he just says, oh, where, where is everyone? And they kind of cavalierly say they're dead and, and life goes on. And it's, it's, a, it's a very British attitude movie. Yeah. I think it's also probably relevant for, to some degree, people who are at that stage of their careers of being soldiers or being in the war. Yeah. Uh, these were soldiers who were captured. Mm-hmm. Probably they're flyers, so most of them were likely shot down. Um, yeah. So it, um, um, it probably would, it be, would be understandable, understandable that people at that point in time were a little blasé about um, about death. Yeah. Um, about um, you know losing friends. You you know you'd probably be a little bit detached or from that kind of thing. I don't know. I've fairness to me, I've never served in the war zone. Um, but I'd like to think that might be something that you, you'd start yeah. to experience. You might be a little bit more distant from that kind of thing happening. I wonder if it's also a bit of a, a tale of two generations as well, because, you know, 1963, the movie came out. That's 20 years, less than 20 years since the end of the war. Well, many of the people in this film served in yeah. the war. Donald Pleasant, for example, was actually shot down, captured by the Germans and tortured and yeah. held. As a prisoner of war, um, some of the people in this film, uh, were, a couple of some of the German characters were POWs um, uh, in the German army uh, yeah. during the war as well. So, yeah, people like uh, Richard Attenborough did serve in mm-hmm. some role during the war as well. So you're right; like these guys, a lot of them were were actual former soldiers, which yeah. added a degree of. Um, Believability to it, yeah. But I I wonder if like that lighthearted, I don't want to say really lighthearted, but that level of brevity that they have at the start is to make this story, which is a very sad story, all things told, um, a little bit more open and accessible. Because probably they're not going to go, yeah, twenty years after the fact, people who is um, still reeling from the effects of it, yeah. We're just going to show them a harrowing experience of it. I don't think anyone wants to be reminded of that so soon after the, the terror of the scenario. That, that is an interesting observation because, like, Hogan's Heroes premiered in 1965. So, oh. um, but that's probably the same sort of thing. You were mm. probably at that point in time where you could take the piss mm. out of it. And, and I was talking to someone about this just the other night was that um, the different phases a community or a society can go through uh, mm. processing a traumatic experience. Yeah. Um, and we look at World War Two as a traumatic experience. Um, you know, they went through phases of dealing with it. I think uh, of the films that came out immediately after the war and through the 50s were very heroic pieces. John yeah. Wayne is, you know, and oh, yeah. taking back the Philippines or something. Like, you know, like, <laughs> um, the longest day, you know, um, very you know, films that really played up on the, the heroism of the Allied The soldiers. heroes were cut and dry heroes. The villains were villainous. Whereas we, by this point in time, we can actually come around and well, start laughing at. We can start laughing at. We can start making comedies yeah. about the war. Um, films like this, uh, characters with a little bit of grey. I was going to say the uh, commandant of the uh, camp, yeah, uh, von Luger. Um, played by Hannes Messmer, who I think was one of the guys who was actually a former German soldier, um, was a little bit grey, right? He wasn't a stereotypical, purely evil Nazi. He had 
he had some he some, had a set of morals running his prison so like we are giving you all of this stuff we are giving you uh farming tools we expect you to use them as tools we want you to essentially be as comfortable as you can be like that's not really not a typical thing when you think of Nazis. No, it's a little bit sympathetic in a way, really. Yeah. Like, um, in the way when he's he's um, has his command taken off him at the end of the film, and he walks off as you feel sympathetic. A little bit of sympathy for him for a Nazi, which is then you sort of you can and it's interesting the way they process that from there into films in the eighties and nineties about it, where you could have a film like uh, Schindler's List, mm. um, which is maybe obviously a, a different aspect of a war yeah. or or Saving Private Ryan, hmm. um, where you could portray the war as hell angle. Yeah. And, I mean, a part of many one of those defects that's the Second World War being built through the Vietnam War. Yeah. That's Maybe. a good discussion. And we've got far more intelligent than we're capable of. Interesting, <laughs> um, I, I watched a – we won't talk about it too deeply, but I had a bit of spare time this week, and I watched an episode of a Desilu Playhouse Theatre on YouTube. Okay. Um, Rod Sterling's first ever – Thing he had produced for television before it was, and um, and I think it was called, called a moment in time or a matter of time or something of that nature. Okay. So it was about a guy who's transported back in time to Pearl Harbor and tries to warn everybody. Um, and I was sort of using it interesting how it was interesting to see how they how they treated Pearl Harbor in the late fifties. Yeah, um, you know, being a singularly traumatic event and trying to juxtapose it how we treat nine eleven. Yeah. yeah. Um, Again, a far deeper discussion than people yeah. are last qualified to have. Um, <laughs> and we're off topic. It never happens. What a surprise. I was shocked to find that James Coburn's character, Cedric, was supposed to be Australian. Yeah, that kind of threw me for a spin as well. <laughs> I was like, oh, okay. All right. Doesn't really sound very. Doesn't sound like he's not doing an accent at all. The only reason I think he was Australian is someone said, "Are you English or something?" At the end of a war, he said, "No, I'm Australian." Yeah. Um, or someone mentioned a kangaroo or a koala or something. It, at some it was point. just this just throwaway line. It's like, oh, oh, well, he did say Australian, but that's that's it. That's not the worst. I mean, I'd say like, is it worse than Tarantino's Australian accent in Django Unchained? Considering he's not even trying. Um, you know, uh, I, I I think the bad accent is better because at least you know he's trying to do it, whereas you're just giving up without even putting in any effort in the case of um, the great James Coburn here. Oh, sorry. Um, <laughs> did he even do an Aussie accent? He may very well have. We just don't know. I don't think so. He was a Spanish peacock. You know? Spanish peacock. He spent many years in Japan with no, no slight hint of Spanish or Japanese. Or, of course, my favourite, Scottish-Russian sub-commander. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> for Red October with the uh, comrade. Um, uh, it's, um, I was also surprised that uh, Charles Bronson's character in this was a very young Charles Bronson. You sort of yeah. think of him as these Death Wish films. But, um, well, this, this kind of sits between his Once Upon a Time in the West and Death Wish. So he's, he's a really buff guy. Yeah. And... He just looks very tough, and his face is just chiseled, but not old. And it's, it's weird, kind of looking at him because I think his most famous role is Death Wish, and the fact that it was parodied in The Simpsons, that like Death I Wish. Shot him. <laughs> I wish I was dead. <laughs> or any he was on, he was on um, the Howdy Doody show, or so he played the, the sheriff. He was like, um, but yeah, it's, it's one of those dated gags. I don't think I got, but. 
Uh, he was impressive, and I thought it was an interesting angle for them to actually then have the guy. He be the guy. Yeah. He's a big, badass, tough-looking guy. He's the guy who gets claustrophobic and too scared yeah. to go in the tunnel. And he's the only one who manages to really escape. And it's like, I, I guess there's the point of it. It's like he secretly, you saw, um, what's his name? Uh, where is he? The Scottish guy. Um, John Layton, the tunnel king? Uh, yes, yes. Um, he uh, like he's the kind of the almost the, the the coin flip alternative of Charles Bronson's character, where he starts with this optimism, hooks up with Steve McQueen's character, but then over time you see it wearing him down and wearing him down, and he's not able to fight through, and he ends up just making a suicide run for the fence, and that is. Uh, he was a, poor, a very tragic character because you just know the way that it is portrayed and the way that um, war and history has been taught, that happened not just in na- Nazi camps, but every other prisoner of war camps. There were people who just couldn't take it and did whatever they could. Um, whereas Charles, Charles Bronson, he's got this level of machismo and he is just going in and tunneling, and you you see him very quickly kind of get in and get get his hands dirty with this this job, and then he's, this personal breakdown and the revelation of him having claustrophobia and him not being able to get through the tunnel and it terrifying him. It's like okay, he's gone through the same shit. We need to give him a, a happy ending. <laughs> I kind of feel like it's like good, and they didn't make an overly soapy. Thing of it, it's just you see him getting on a boat and just drifting off to whatever end. It's not, you know, like oh, six months later in Paris, I'm yeah. having a cup of tea with my new wife or anything like that. It's it's just left nebulous. And you, for me, I just believe that he was able to reclaim some semblance of normalcy. I think I think same. Hmm. Uh, I am. Um, let's let's just talk about the cast a bit more because yeah. this is one. Hell of a cast. It's pretty special. We've got, of course, we talked about Steve McQueen being one of the biggest, coolest action stars of his day. Mm -hmm. Uh, James Garner, again, Mm -hmm. huge star. Mm -hmm. Attenborough, uh, Charles Bronson. Yeah. I'm speaking of the I'm familiar with Donald Pleasance, of course, fans for Halloween and a number of other things. Um, James Coburn. um, uh, Those are the ones that I'm familiar with. Yeah, same. Uh, yeah, yeah. I think some of these others are probably people who people would be someone out there going, "Oh my god, I can't believe you haven't mentioned." How did you not mention Michael Russell, Michael <laughs> Stock, or something? Right? Yeah. Like, I mean, he was the third guy from the right on Doctor Who or something. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, some of these guys' names are maybe lost to lost to history a little mm-hmm. bit, and maybe mm-hmm. big names. In their day, but that's yeah. a hell of a collection of talent. Hell yeah, hell yeah, and they they each have that opportunity to shine as well. And I'll tell you something: my whenever I think of Richard Attenborough, I instantly go to Jurassic Park, of course. And I've watched this movie multiple times, and the first time he appears, I look at him and go, like, "Who's that?" He just looks so very different. And He's so young, yeah, and so unassuming in the role. He's like. The the the, the 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 choreographer of this big escape, and he's just 
Everyone else around him seems to be taller, more manly, masculine, and just more more presence. But every time that he's in a scene, it's just he's captivating. He does it. He owns a scramble of eagles. He's got that kind of charisma. Yeah. He's actually guy because he's famous. But why? Because he was Father Christmas. I mean, like, I look at his stuff here. Apart from Jurassic Park and The Great Escape, he directed Gandhi in the 80s. That got him a lot of attention, yeah. The Bridge Too Far? Yeah. I've heard of. But like, another great one. Otherwise, it's all a bit meh. Miracle on 50. That's a remake. <laughs> yeah. It's not even the original. If he was in the original, it's a short film. Uh, it's a decent remake. Um... Yeah, I don't know. Is he maybe famous because he's got a famous brother? Maybe. Was he a theatre actor? He was a theatre actor, for sure, yes. Um, I think it's a combination of all of that stuff and just remember how successful Jurassic Park was and that made him, especially the fact that he was, he played that line in that movie of lovable grandfather figure and also morally corrupt guy for <laughs> everything that he was doing. And, you know, it's supposed to be this big revelation that he finally is willing to let it go and, and move on and save his grandchildren and all of that stuff. Um, but he played that so well that I feel like, certainly for me, that really connected. And I remember watching Gandhi and just being blown away by it. And just, it was kind of one of the first grown-up Oscar movies that I ever chose to watch. So it stuck with me a bit more, and I just thought it was beautifully directed. Um, ben Kingsley was phenomenal as the character of Gandhi, character of Gandhi, <laughs> portraying Gandhi. Um, and so I feel like that gave a lot of cachet to his name for me. But, um, yeah, he's not really... He's not really been mainstream aside from a couple of spots here and there, really. But then I guess the same could kind of be uh, said for, like, think of, I mean, for me, I'd kind of maybe put someone like Jeffrey Rush in there, but he has done a lot more mainstream affairs. Especially yeah. Yeah. But otherwise, he was doing things like Shine and The King's Speech and things like that that just... So, like, not necessarily box office gold, but you look at them and you just go, holy shit, he's done something really good. He was also in, um, was he in Shakespeare in Love? He was in Elizabeth. Uh, he got around after he wanted us. Yeah. He cashed in. He made bang. <laughs> um, I miss him in stuff, though. I, yeah, I think it's, you know, the whole lawsuit thing. Um, certainly didn't help. Didn't help the situation, yeah, certainly really, despite help. the fact that he won mm-hmm. said lawsuit, and I think he got a lot of money off yeah, got newspapers and that, stuff yeah. for that one. Yeah. So he has, of course, accused of things which have not been found or have happened. Mm-hmm. Uh, do not want to get sued as well. No. Um, <laughs> but, you know, sometimes these things stick. Yeah. Um, it's, it's quite a cast. It's, it's yeah. quite, the film looks incredible. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's it aged well. It has it's beautifully shot. Yeah, um, the colours just still pop on the screen. Mm-hmm. It's like uh, I am by no means smart enough or, or talented enough to know anything about the technical aspects of how they shot it. But it, it looks it, films don't look like this anymore. No. It was it is of its time, but it's beautifully of its time. It, it, some films 
you sort of say they don't look like me and they haven't aged well. But this look, I, it kept taking me back to um, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, where mm-hmm. of course, this, um, haven't seen it, there is a scene in that film where um, Leo DiCaprio is basically inserted into The Great Escape um, <laughs> as his character with Dalton having been in the running to play the role played by Steve McQueen. Mm-hmm. Um, and it took me back to that scene, how gorgeous that scene looked in that film. And the whole film itself is just incredibly shot. Mm-hmm. Um, and it'd be, I wish you kind of, kind of, you know, there's a little bit more of that kind of thing going on today. Yeah, yeah, 100%. Uh, I mean, unfortunately, aside from a handful of directors and some even fewer cinema photographers, you couldn't, you wouldn't really be able to easily pick X movie by Y director because they've kind of found their routine. And I think that's part of the, the problem that I have with a lot of the Disney stuff now is like, okay, they are making movies to make a billion dollars. And they know you can go to this extreme here as a high and this extreme here as a low. So you don't get much opportunity for director flair or um, like the Marvel movie palette. There's a palette for these movies. And it's like, okay, how does that sit in amongst all the others? And it's everything is meticulously detailed to the point of almost being vanilla. Whereas this, it's because it's a standalone movie, which standalone movies are always easier to construct because you're not thinking about what came before, what comes after, what's running in tangent with this and all of that stuff. But you are able to, as a lot of animation companies do, they ring out every element of every frame of film because it takes so long to produce it. Think of Lord of the Rings, like the attention to detail and the set design and the way that it's filmed to just show off this wonderful, really lived-in, authentic world. And that prison, authentic. The way that they worked in and around it, it just felt genuine. And so that sort of stuff sits outside of time. And it just is, is that always. It's wonderful. Now, I think... If you've got nothing else to say on this one, I think you have your next move uh, in mind. I do, yeah. And in spirit of watching things that we have not watched, I'm going to follow Steve McQueen to possibly his most iconic role of Bullet. Home of the greatest car chase of all time. Or Depending one of, on who you believe. Yeah, yeah for sure. One of the greatest yeah. car chases. It's certainly... I think it wouldn't be too far to say this is the original blueprint for how all modern car chases have been evolved from. This is the starting point because it did some amazing things. And Steve McQueen was um, a very, very proficient um, motorbike and motorcycle rider. And there's, <laughs> I was looking at some of the um, uh, facts about Great Escape and there were scenes where he was... Um, they were cutting it together that he was riding away on his bike and he was also playing one of the Nazis that was chasing after him because he was just more competent on the bike going across the dirt tracks and things like that. He was really, really strong. And he doesn't 
do all of the stunts in Bullet, but does a significant amount of the driving and even the casual driving in this. It's um, I told him he didn't do the jump in the Great yeah. Escape, so yeah. um, but you know, they probably wouldn't let him for yeah. insurance purposes, right? <laughs> yeah, he'll see McQueen. Oops. You know, there, there's a lawsuit waiting to happen. But um, yeah. uh, your suggestion, of course, for where I'll go off to this is directed by Peter Yates, who mm-hmm. directed uh, Crawl. Crawl. <laughs> I said Crawl on VHS. <laughs> we reviewed Crawl last year on my other podcast, available now on Spotify. Uh, throwback, if you want to, <laughs> if you want to hear a little bit about what I thought about Crawl, because we yeah, are not going to be watching fucking Crawl after <laughs> next week. Right. I, I think I've managed, ladies and gentlemen, I think I've managed to get us to a point where he won't force me to watch a musical. <laughs> no, no, as in I would have to do it too. Um, so it's it's of course starring um, it's uh, starring the great Steve McQueen. We've got Jacqueline Bissett, Robert Vaughn, uh, Robert Duvall. Uh, there's a few places. In fact, I I actually kind of already know what I'm going to do next. So there we go. Um, but this is a I think I have seen this film before, and it is um. I went on a movie tour once in San Francisco, mm. and this is set in one of the most famous yeah. movies set in San Francisco. Yeah. Um, so I think that's what inspired me to actually check it out. And so it's a quality, quality film. Um, and that's something to look forward to. Yeah, and to, to get ahead of ourselves, uh, for anyone who doesn't know, Bullet is an all-guts, no-glory San Francisco cop becomes determined to find the underground kingpin that killed the witness in his protection. Simple, easy. I'm really excited about this. I am looking forward to this. It's one of those films. It, it, is, it a, is it a filming education for everyone here? Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, I think so. Um, so, yeah. Actually, I'll just change where I'm going to go next. But um, <laughs> there's so many options. It's so it's a it's a That's for next it, week. it's a veritable delight. But it is not it is not today's conversation. It is next week's conversation yes. Um, yes. on on that topic. Should we talk a little about Loki? Yeah, sure, let's get. Let's you're, get talk, you're talking about Disney and Marvel, yeah, so Disney and Marvel. We're talking about Loki. Um, that is 33 minutes 52 seconds. We are going to be going in hard on the whole season, especially the finale. So if you haven't watched, skip ahead 15, 20 minutes. I'm going to put up the uh, spoilers cast uh, notice now. Five, four, three, two, one. Spoilers in coming. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think we took episode five and six because we didn't get to yeah, that. Yeah, that was good. So in episode five, uh, Loki and Sylvie end up both being uh, pruned. And pruned. Pruned. Or <laughs> what, yeah, and basically end up at the end of time. Yes. And whereupon they meet some of the more interesting, I'd say, not some of the more, the most interesting characters in the series aside yes. from Alan Wilson, yes. including... Original Loki, yeah, uh, played Grant. by the friend of a show, Richard Grant. I wish he was a friend of a show. Um, <laughs> but you know, uh, one of our favorite actors up there was Sam Rockwell, yeah, uh, who absolutely steals every scene he's in as mm-hmm. original Loki. And you're like, mm-hmm. why couldn't we have a show about him? Yes, uh, and Alligator Loki somehow, despite having no lines, also was significantly more interesting. Than I'm more invested in Alligator Loki than I ever have been about. Baby Yoda. Absolutely. It's all about alligator Loki. We and we um we get a little exposition about how to where they are and what they might be able to do to find out who is the real big bad behind yes. what's going on. 
Um, we get to see uh, President Loki, I think it is, yes. very briefly. Yep. Yeah, there's a lot of cameos. Uh, like there's a, there's a shot where it kind of comes down a cliffside, and there's um, uh, a jar with a frog in it that's uh, froggy, and it's Thor frog or something like that. And it's like, okay, that's the thing. There's a Thanos copter yeah. that's ripped straight out of the, the comic books, and probably have James Gunn to thank for that because he did post like in 2015 about so like, I can't wait to see the Thanos copter. Um, I believe Chris Hemsworth did voice the frog. Yes, apparently. Um, so. <laughs> so I didn't even realize the frog had lines, but um, <laughs> ribbit. Uh, it's a nice little. Sorry, they, it, it was a riveting line. Uh, it's nice talking to everyone tonight. <laughs> and that's how the show. And that's dies. how the show ends. Um, <laughs> um, I put the the, the production design of this episode was wonderful. wonderful. Uh, it looked good. Yeah. All those little uh, Easter egg things. Like in the, 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 uh, there's a big cloud thing because Marvel loves killer clouds. Yeah, um, a monster, <laughs> a liar, which is what consumes all the things. That end up in this end of time place that are prune. And the original Loki and Alligator Loki, so actually hide them in their, their lair, which is an old bowling alley, I think. Yeah. Um, and behind them, little, little nods, there was a, a video game called Polybius, mm. like, which is, is a famous urban myth about a video game that the US government designed to test people who would give you weird psychosomatic. And yeah, make yeah. you dizzy and lose yeah, control yeah. of yourself. It's a whole Wikipedia article. Look it up. Um, the, the, what you're talking about right now is what I was referring to before. It's like that making every frame count. And this is the sort of, that, that episode five was one. It was just got ripped apart online for sort of like, oh, well, what's this in the background here? What uh, this is reference to that and things like that. And so like you could, yeah, this that's why this barren landscape of nothingness was so compelling because they just really went, yep, okay, we are going to invest. They, they painted to the edges. I heard someone mm -hmm. say that once about Peter Jackson, and I think they did yes. that in this episode yes. too. They say very rarely do um, yeah. give us anything to go off. And I thought mm -hmm. it's a bit of fan service here. I like that. Yeah, absolutely. In the, end, the finale of the episode, um, uh, Sylvie and Loki managed to enchant the cloud thing. A, a, a Thor or? Elias. Elias, yes. Uh, to go away or something. And so they, it gets out of the way and there's a big castle thing and they start yes. walking towards it and then we we, we, we end on, on that note. Yeah. Um, uh, meanwhile, Mobius has found his way back to the TVA, which uh -huh. will pay off in episode six. Yes. Um, in episode six, we finally get the we, get, we follow Sylvie and Loki into the castle and we meet finally the big bad. Every year, every year thread is tied off. You know, everything is entirely wrapped up. Not. Mm -hmm. We meet uh, Jonathan Majors. Jonathan Majors, yes. Who is the guy who's running the castle. The one who survived. The, yeah, the one the who remains or something. The right? man who remains, yeah. Yeah, and we are not given his name. Nope. We don't know who his person is. Nope. You watch hard, so you do not know who guy is. He, he's nope. asked at one point, who are you? He goes, oh, I've got my many names, you know. Mm -hmm. It just goes to stupid things like uh, I've been called the man who survives and the idiot and things like that. It's like okay, none of those are actually ones that I can go. Oh, oh, that's a hint. 
No, it's just like, okay. I mean, a bit like WandaVision, there have been some theories kicking around about who it was going to be. Was it Krang or Kang or something was going to be? Or... Yeah, there was, there was Kang. There was uh, some people were kind of going, oh, is, um, is it actually going to be Galactus? Or is it going to be a heard original Loki? Because people were like, oh, Richard Grant's credited in three episodes, but he's only been in two. But he was in the re- re- recap at the start of this episode. Yeah. So there you go, he's in three. And, um, I accidentally watched it with uh, subtitles. So Greta Thunberg uh, is in unofficially in I did heard she said, how dare you? Yeah. Um, I caught that. Yeah. Um, so she's, she's canon now. Yep. Um, but I guess so frustratingly, if you're looking for closure, no. you're not going to get it. I'm no. sorry. Um, Marvel, in their grand wisdom, have decided that no one gets closure for Disney Plus shows. Um, unless you consider the big speech at the end of Cap, um, do better. Soldier, do better, which I didn't really like, but maybe yeah. you did. Yeah. Um, that's just as close as we've got the closure. All three of the shows that have come on Disney Plus have been nothing but launching points for next movies, and the fact that two of them are directly leading into Doctor Strange means that they clearly needed to have another Doctor Strange movie beforehand before going into the multiverse of madness. They've, they've run it, like I was saying to Travis beforehand, they're running to catch up with themselves. They've got all of this stuff planned ahead of time, and they've gone, oh, yeah, you know what, that's a little bit thin on that side, and uh, we need to, we do need to, do we want to waste another movie introducing a, a new Captain America? Uh, let's do it in a TV show. That way we've time to these um, performers who, a little bit of fan love that they didn't get enough time on screen. And that's all this. This is kind of contract service, I feel. I mean, when we weren't necessarily opposed to Falcon and Soldier, I thought it was yeah. fine. Yeah, it was good. All the shows have been fine. Poly Vision was great in part. It just finished poorly for me. Yeah. Um, I honestly, I think we said it the first time we talked about Loki. To me, I think this is potentially the weakest of the three shows so far. Yeah. I, I, there was a, a slab of 10 minutes of exposition in the middle of a final episode yeah. of them just talking to each other. So And nothing gets revealed. Nothing actually coming out of that conversation. It, it, they're talking in circles. And it's just like, this is kind of boring. Yeah. And then there was a sword fight, which was also boring. Yep. Um, and then there was, sorry, big spoiler here. Spoilers. The, uh, the kiss that we've been waiting for three or four episodes between mm-hmm. Loki and Sylvie, which is essentially between Loki and Loki, so it's mm-hmm. really masturbation. Mm-hmm. I mean, we'd all do it if we could. Um, <laughs> but, you know, uh, then it was, a bit, again, I was like, I don't care. Yeah. I mean, you called it because you, you called it the basically, okay, well, curse your sudden and inevitable betrayal. Yeah. It's like, oh, no, someone has shown a bit of intimacy. Yes, they're going to be betrayed. Sorry. Whoops. And I feel like this does a big disservice to Jonathan Majors because he was enjoyable to watch. He was entertaining. He was this... He was, again, like I talked about it with Richard Adler and Jurassic Park, and playing that line between adorable and kind of corrupt. He is, they, they keep trying to go back to it as if it's almost like the writers are going, oh, I want to talk about the moral ramifications of deleting someone from the timeline for the greater good. And it just, they're, they're never able to actually go down that path. And Jonathan Majors plays this, role of someone who's been on his own aside from a digitized Miss Minute. I'm going to share my screen here for a second. Mm. 
because I've just seen something here while I was listening to you talk. Is this so, a cat in a basket? It is not a cat in a basket. This is the INDB page for our friend here, Mr. Majors. Mm. So this is the gentleman who plays He Who Remains. This mm-hmm. is character's credited title. Yeah. He is also credited as being coming up to star in another Marvel film, mm-hmm. Ant-Man 3, Quantum Mania. Let's have a look at his title. Kang the Conqueror. There we go. Now, by no means can you use IMDb. I'll stop that. But you can see what I mean. You can have a look at yourself. It's right here. I did not make that up. Um, that is by no means a, a guaranteed yeah, thing yeah. that's going to happen. I think Quentin Tarantino had Kill Bill 3 sitting on his directorial yeah. thing yeah. for about 15 years. Yeah. I almost guarantee that's not going to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, if that's a bit of a spoiler, though, if that's real. Yeah. Well, he... I remember now one of the things that he said. He he said, "I am. A, I have been called the conqueror." Yeah, and it's like okay, but that's a very broad one because there are a few people who have been referred to as conquerors. But I don't know the fact that again, that it's further evidence that they're using these to to seed the movies. That the no matter the quality, because the production value of all three shows has been great they're still being treated like the red-headed stepchild and only allowed to come out for very select tool-like purposes of narration where the movies have not been able to fill in as much of the blanks as they really want to. I just, it's, it was, like, it's a bit disappointing. I think the whole series, I know it's, people love it. It's got a very good rating on IMDb. It's an 8.9 overall the series. People seem to like it. Yeah. I personally found the whole thing underwhelming. I found Loki's arc deeply, deeply underwhelming. It went nowhere. I found Sylvie. I, we talked about it. I'm sorry. I, I, I found her underwhelming. Mm-hmm. I don't think the actress was a good choice. Like I said, at last time, she just reminded me a lot of Jodie Whittaker. <laughs> That's not a good thing. <laughs> um, and yeah, but I, I found at the end, I was going, why exactly does she want to destroy the TVA so badly? Why does she want to kill this guy so badly? Why does she want to kill yeah. uh, Jonathan Majors? He remains. Mm. I was sitting going, what was her motivation again for all of this? And I found myself going, I really don't remember. never told. Even in, I think it was episode four, she asks very plainly, what was my crime? What did I do to warrant being deleted off? And there's no answer. And it's like, oh, okay. We have to go through a whole second season to maybe get an answer to that, which at that point is going to be a year, a year and a half divorce from that point. And the movies are coming back out. They are being released again. So the story is going to continue. I mean, there's the big reveal. The after credit scene in this is a reveal that will, Loki will return in season two. And you're yeah. like, fine, like, okay. I guess. I'm, okay, I'm, yeah. not, I'm not really that excited about it because I I don't know. Maybe we'll I like it. Tom Hiddleston. I, I like him. He does good, like, good things as Loki, yeah. but, but I... I'm just not interested. It's I like, really okay, I'm, I'm with you here in this one. We're, 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 you're singing from the same sort of hymn sheet. Yeah, I know. Maybe we're being too hard. Yeah. But everyone else seems to enjoy it. I just sort of thought it was a bit... Yeah. Especially after a good episode five, it seemed to be going in an yeah. interesting direction. This one seemed to take, us, take away all the things I enjoyed about the first last episode. By the end of episode five, it's like, okay, they've got one episode left and they've got a lot of story to tell here. And that seems to be the... Biggest problem with 
all three of the shows is they don't know how to use the time they've chosen. It's not that they have been given, okay, you only have six episodes or you only have eight episodes. It's already it's different it's TV networks. Network. They can go, okay, yep, this is the story we want to tell, beginning, middle, and end. How much time do you need? Or oh, I can do it in six. And it's so badly paced. You made an excellent point there. Is I found myself thinking a lot in this episode. We're being very critical. This is not the worst show I've ever seen by any stretch. No, not at all. Fine. Yeah. It just could have been a lot better. Yes. Um, what I found myself thinking was, it felt a little bit like the Star Wars films in the sense that I don't know that you know, I always talk about it. George's whiteboard is his, his room with the post notes became his first book and will become his second book. Yes. Um, or, um, you know, um, my, my girlfriend Michelle's hmm. a novelist. She has her stuff planned out in her own way. She has it in her head how she's going to write hmm. her, her book. And her story about where it goes. She has a major beat in her head. She yeah. cannot use, not use, no, she, she has her own methodology. But, um, our criticism with Star Wars to take a, a very short step backwards was that, um, um that, uh, uh, that they didn't, didn't really seem to have that. But we got Aiden, 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 no judgment. Now, he did ignore what Abrams had set up. Yeah. And then they brought Abrams back to go, yeah, and everyone hated that. Let's just go back to what I was planning. Yeah. And so it felt, for, for me anyway, very disjointed as, as a trilogy. And yeah. that was all over the shop. Yeah. And I kind of felt like, do, do these guys actually have an idea in their head about where these things are going to end up? Or they just get to the last episode and go, I don't know, scribing. That's it. I mean, the, it's, it's now kind of Hollywood stamp of approval, Kevin Feige's method on how to create a successful shared universe. And he has talked about how he has planned everything um, uh, at least broad strokes for all the movies that have come, all the movies that are coming, and all the movies that he wants to kind of go through. It just doesn't feel like that attention is being brought into each individual project, specifically this stuff that we've gotten in the last year and a half where it is like, all right, we can utilize this because Wonder is going to show up in this and because we are going to be suddenly introducing the um, multiverse and things like that. We do, I feel like we probably do need to explain that. Otherwise, we're going to be looking at Zack Schneider-length movies and no one's going to want to do that and it's going to slow down the pace of the movies and we want to make sure that they make a billion dollars. So let's make a TV show because that's cheaper for us. And go. <laughs> I think that's a little hands off. They still feel significantly. Feels this phase so far mm. feels significantly more disjointed mm. than what came before. Yeah, and um, even when you try and go, oh, but these are this is the first movies. Like, okay, well, let's just look at the first movies of the MCU, and you had solid to great performances that intelligently told a beginning, middle, and end, and. They had that little Easter egg at the end to lead into the next one. It wasn't every episode has to have X amount of lead-ins or references back to. And I feel like they're kind of being 
forced into a situation where they have to have to make sure oh yeah make a make a quick little subtle, subtle nod to this because that's going to be in phase six or um, but um, make sure you bring this in many people didn't realize how important um it is when tony stark's daughter says i love you 3000 that number 3000 is going to be echoed throughout the mcu and things like that like okay just just let them tell a story get that get that story done and maybe add in these other bits intelligently where they fit Maybe. No? Okay. All right. I don't think we liked it as much as everybody else did. It's just, the, the, thing, the thing is, it, it just screams of missed opportunity. It it does. It, it, I was very optimistic about it. I think everyone was like, see the Loki show. Mm. Um, and apart from, yeah, apart from the aesthetic and some of the, episode one, maybe episode five, I kind of felt the big humour in episode one. Mm-hmm. Felt very Rick and Morty, which yes. is I think the writer who's involved yes, in this is very Rick and Morty. That's yeah. the final episode. Felt kind of like someone had taken Rick and Morty ideas, sucked the jokes out, and then just put them on screen. Um, yeah. But uh, you know, the, the, the multiverse idea is very Rick and Morty esque. Yeah. Oh, yeah. um, yeah. But episode five, we talked about what we liked about that. Mm-hmm. The rest of it was all a bit meh. I would like to call out when. Original Loki is at the end, and it's just like glorious powers. I for for that brief moment, I saw Richard E. Grant doing his character from How to Get Ahead in Advertising, where he's just been monologuing his way on a hike to the top of a mountain, and he just screams out this bloody fantastic thing, and he's like, "Oh, I have such a man crush on you! I do not care." It is good, it's great. It would be you know, like uh, you seem to walk up to um. To uh, Tom Hiddleston in uh, the end of time ago, we seem to have come on holiday by mistake. Uh, uh, there's so many, so many gags in there, you know. Don't threaten me with a dead fish. Um, if you haven't seen Withnell and I, you are just missing out on the best part. Um, can I segue into something else, Marvel Disney, for a second? Yeah, and then we can have an ad break because there's an ad I absolutely yeah. have to show everybody this week. Yeah. Um, so for everyone. The uh, spoilers end at 53 minutes. So I'll try and keep Black Widow spoil free, but we one quick spoiler though to say that well, we'll get to that. Um, I went to the drive-in on Friday night <gasps> to see um, to see uh, the latest Marvel uh, uh, superhero film um, Black Widow, which we've been waiting for for about a year now. This is a year ago it was supposed to be released. Yep, um, and I'm sorry to say, George has not seen this yet, so you'll hear from his opinion at some point in the future, I imagine. I think this film kind of missed the mark for me. It was not worth the wait. This is by no means a bad Marvel film. This is a solid, middle-of-the-road Marvel film. And you know exactly what I'm talking about. How many of these? 30 of these now? Um, So you know exactly what to expect. For me, I think other echelon for Ragnarok, Endgame, Original Avengers, Winter Soldier, mm-hmm. here's your sort of way you keep for keeping top end. Mm-hmm. If you're down at the bottom, we're talking, it's the Incredible Hulk MCU, I think, kind of Well, is. considering um, the Abomination is in the uh, Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings trailer, fighting Benedict Wong's character, yeah. yeah so I think the Incredible Hulk, that's the Ed Norton one, um, and Captain Marvel, for Dark World, mm. You're down in that category. Yeah. Unfortunately, it's neither of those. It's kind of in there with the first Thor movie. Kind of like, 
it was all right. Um, and things that work in this film, uh, David Harbour, David Harbour, David Harbour, and David Harbour. The guy needs his own Red Guardian film. That. Uh, he's, he's, his jokes in his brilliant. He, he is played for laughs a lot. Um, now, I, was, I, I saw this with Michelle on uh, the drive-in, and I said, I know exactly what some of the commenters out there are going to say. They're going to go, well, all the male characters are stupid or evil or played for laughs. Yeah, it's kind of true. Um, but I, I think it kind of worked in this one. It wasn't done in a, in a way that it actually, you know, bothered me at all. Um, David Harbour, he been to Red Guardian. Red Guardian is kind of, if you don't know, and this is Dan Paul explained by the film, was a Soviet version of Captain America. How did that happen? Don't know. When did he get the serum? Don't know. No one says. He just is. Um, um, so, but he is, um, he and uh, Richard Feast, uh, film starts in Ohio in 1994. Okay. And they are like the Americans. Remember the TV show The Americans? Oh, so they're like a so Soviet sleeper yeah. cell. Why they're a Soviet sleeper cell after the fall of the Soviet Union? Don't know. Um, <laughs> I'm sensing a theme here. <laughs> well, they are. Um, and they think of the Americans, which is a good thing, because I love that show. Um, and um, if you haven't seen it, you check it out. Um, but uh, and they have a fake family. They're not actually married. They're eight. But their fake family includes Natasha and her sister, Yelena. Uh, and there's a uh, Yelena Florence Pugh? Played by Florence Pugh. The older Yelena played by Florence Pugh, mm-hmm. who is, I guess, her fake sister. Yeah. Um, that's just um, then we see them having a, a daring escape from, from uh, the uh, American authorities back in, in Russia, I guess, Russia. Um, and at that point, um, Natasha and Yelena are taken off to be part of the Red Room, which is where Natasha learns how to be what she becomes. Like, 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 um, we then cut into the future and we see Yelena, still part of a Red Room now, and a very highly accomplished assassin. She's being mind controlled to do that. Um, so this is all in the first ten minutes. So you know, are we so like talking mind controlled on this kind of level of Winter Soldier? Mm, sort of, but in a different way, different different methodology. Okay. Um, and she is free from her mind control by the MacGuffin of the film, of course. Uh, <laughs> and she then seeks out and mails more of a MacGuffin to to um, Scarlet, sorry Natasha, who the film is set after Civil War. Okay, so, so it's in that, that the blip gap. A blip gap. So uh, after Civil War, before Infinity War. Mm. Um, so at this point, she's being hunted by Thunderbolt Ross for being a yeah, criminal fugitive type thing. Oh, so no, it's, uh, yeah, so it's, it's well before the blip. Well before the blip. So no Thanos yet. Yeah. It's a bit where she's like, it's a hunted criminal and, you know, yes. Yes. Um And then, you know, we meet the, one of the... Uh, Protagonist of the antagonist of the film, like a Taskmaster. Probably everyone's seen Taskmaster in the trailers. Yeah. Won't talk too much about that other than to say, Antimon is Taskmaster. Um, <laughs> and you'll be shocked and appalled to hear the Taskmaster joins the pantheon, the growing and endless pantheon of forgettable Marvel antagonists. Um, <laughs> They just keep pissing them against the wall. Now, I know a lot of people are like, Taskmaster in the comic books is really cool, and they do 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 do, and none of that. Um, but uh, the family dynamic of this film, we, we see later, we are 
stuff happens because I don't want to spoil it too much. But uh, Yelena and, and Natasha need to team up and sort of go and grab their dad who's in jail. We need to go and find Melina, Rachel Visa's character, and they sort of reform that fake family unit that they had. When they're on screen together, it works. Well, even in the trailer for it, there's um, like bits where they put together, they're sitting around the dinner table, they're all in their uniforms and stuff, and they're talking, so like sit, sit up straight, you get a bad back. Just the banter between those four characters, that looks great. That's like, okay, if this is the way they're going, I'm in. And David Harbour, is, uh, you know, he is kind of the part of a lot of jokes, but it just kind of works really well in this, this dynamic because, you know, he's a goofy dad, right? Yeah, like, yeah. And so it's not like the, the uh, soap opera dad. Yeah, and it works in a yeah. way that, say, go to one Wonder Woman 84, a way he treated his male characters, it was just kind of, I'm not going to get it. Yeah, it was just ridiculous. Yeah. Um, They're literally interchangeable. Um, <laughs> David Harbour, he's, 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 a, he's a delight. And Rachel Vies is incredible, and I'm a huge fan of her. Yes. Um, we actually, she was one of our film challenge things. She yeah. was the one who goes, Machine. Um, <laughs> what a what, she's a wonderful actress. You yes. don't see enough of these days. Florence Pugh is incredible as Yolanda. I'm a huge fan of hers. Um, I think I noticed her first when I saw Fighting with My Family, the, oh, yeah. the WWE Rock, the movie that Rock produced about um, the British. Uh, um, What's her name? Yeah, the British professional wrestler. The uh, <laughs> one. The one who, who escaped. British Bulldog. Uh, yeah, she totally breaks the British. I would pay to see that. She um, the entire WWE. She plays Knight. Oh, I can't. That's her actual character. No, I can't her character's name. Uh, anyway, um, but she was. There's a film, if you haven't seen it, you're looking at a wrestling film. Trust me, see it. It has absolutely no business. Page. Done. Page. It's a wonderful film. I thought she was great in it. She's great in this. She really has good chemistry mm. with Scarlett. Mm. The, the lack of a, score, a strong antagonist really lets the film down for me. You make up your own mind about it. Some of the accents are a bit iffy. Um, <laughs> I'd just like you to say, pay, pay close attention to Ray Winstone's accent because it's probably up there with Tarantino's Australian accent. He is not good at making accents. Um, so uh, I don't think he's giving away too much. Um, just keep an eye on that for you. Um, <laughs> so yeah, the action set pieces are good. Meh. Um, where I think the weakness I, I decided on this was that I don't care anymore about what I don't really care about what you this film has to say about Black Widow because I know what happens in Black Widow because I've seen Endgame. Yeah. Um, this film, uh, I've been saying it for a long time, should have come out five to ten years ago. Yeah. And the fact that they sat on it, I have no idea why they thought no one would want to see it. Mm. Like, even it was after The Avengers, that's 2012, right? Mm. So 2013, 2014, so six, seven years ago, people would have been psyched to see this movie. Yeah. And it would have made a lot more sense if we wanted to tell something like an origin story. Yeah about why Black Widow is who she is, where she came from, mm. people would have been all over that shit. The fact that it's done now, mm. after she's dead, yeah. her character's dead. Without any, like, if, if there had been um, a growing thread for Black Widow character in uh, between Civil War and the other two Magnolia's uh, Avengers movies of her having this kind of, like pull for family or something like that that would have 
worked as a catalyst on why does she think that way? Why is she suddenly so invested in keeping the family together or something? And then that being the, the nugget for this movie, yeah, maybe. It's like if you're going to be fucking around with the chronology of a movie um, and kind of, oh, yes, we're going to start with the death of the character. How did they get here? That sort of stuff. You have to make that journey very, very very poignant. And we didn't do any mention of her sister before no, this point in time. It's right. This is just like, oh, here. I mean, yeah, it, it would have been, maybe if it like, had, even if it just dropped a hint into you know, like, or an, you know, a cameo or some sort of, somehow, got the impression this film had been planned at some point mm-hmm. to happen. It's by making it sound horrible. It's not horrible. You'll probably go along. You'll probably dig it. I and Michelle, who was with me, both of us, I just don't feel like I really engaged with the film or care in the sense that half of the strength of the Marvel films is you know what happens in that film matters to a wider storyline. Question. Do you think that this is potentially a backdoor for Florence Pugh to take to carry on the Black Widow name? Yes, because after the credit scene and fingers in your ears, Oh, yeah, but so the after credit scene gives a very strong indication that it's the case, okay. that we will be seeing more of uh, Florence Yelena in a future Disney Plus series. No. Okay. Disney Plus series. Whether she's in the movie, maybe, don't know, but um, I absolutely guarantee you will see her in a Disney Plus series coming okay. up soon. Uh, is hopefully that is not giving away too much about uh, the after credit scene. I know. <laughs> you know, because you just said, oh, what, did somebody tell you? Uh, no, I I found out that um, a certain actress um, was in that and was like, oh, okay. And then I realised where else she had been and who she was interacting with, and now I know what they're doing. You can also just yeah. check Florence <laughs> Pugh's IMDb page. Oh, that gives it all right. It's all <laughs> right there. Um, and it says it's coming out later this year, so... Oh, fuck. Oh, uh, I don't know how much of a spoiler that's going to be if it's on IMDb. Yeah. Um, that, that, you can I say it? Go on. It's on IMDb, people. Uh, don't blame us. She's going to be on Hawkeye. Yeah. Uh, she's credited with eight episodes of Hawkeye. So she's, if the post credit scene gives you a strong indication, she will not speak. I mean, it could be a, a big part of that series. But I, that, that makes it even further uh, evidence to where my mind went and they're going to go with the Thunderbolt squad. They're going to have uh, Hawk Girl or whatever they end up calling her. It's going to be Jeremy Renner's daughter is going to become yeah. the new Hawkeye. There's going to be um, what's his, uh, Kurt Russell's son, uh, 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 US agent. agent, and uh, Yelena is going to be in there. And then you're probably going to get. Uh, oh, I think uh, I think we've already got confirmed. Um, what's her name from um, shit? Uh, Tatiana Maslany. Um, from uh, Orphan Black, she's gonna. I think she's supposed to be coming in as She-Hulk in the Disney Plus. Yes, they have been talking about She-Hulk. Yeah, so I think they're very much gearing for that Thunderbolts movie, which you know it's gonna be kind of um, Suicide Squad-y, not necessarily moralistically grey characters that aren't yeah cut and dry. Hero. Kim Roth is the abomination will appear in 10 episodes of She-Hulk, according to IMDb. Uh, <laughs> I think I just confirmed over this theory yeah. that the Incredible Hulk with head nod and he's absolutely canon MCU. Yeah. 
which could be an interesting play with the multiverse because they could that does open them up to the possibility that they could maybe have Ed Norton make a cameo as one wow. of the whole Because let's face it, Ed, you do people work with and you don't work a lot these days, right? Um, yeah. Uh, you know, there's only so many films that Wes Anderson can make in a year. Yep. <laughs> he, he has um, tentatively announced his next movie, and Tilda Swinton and him are heading to Spain to film it, but he's not telling us any details yet. So I'm he's going to be in too. So, that, yeah. um, anyway, that's, that's Marvel for you. It's what you, you, you'll go along, you'll enjoy you'll it. You made all the money. You made, made $60 million purely on Disney Plus alone last weekend. Well, in the United States. In Australia, it's $36 or something like that. Yeah, $36 dollars I have, well, I, if you have the option to go to a cinema, why wouldn't you do that? Yeah. I mean, obviously, if you're in a lockdown and that's a bit different, maybe you would kick out 30 bucks. but yeah. Um, if you can go see it at a cinema, do that. Yeah, absolutely. Support your cinemas. Yes, please. Please, because they are wonderful places to go. Uh, and well, yeah, we 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 would be we're already looking down the barrel at um at um at a world without cinema. So mm-hmm. I think it's time for our weekly sponsor. Yes, yes. Um, who is sponsoring us? What our our, our, our sponsors of this week? Uh, will be uh is I should say um the nineteen eighty eight uh compilation cassette tape uh eighty eight kicks on um. Well, well, this is an aging in, in general. Um, <laughs> I'm just doing after our, our sponsors' content here now because I'm, uh, I'm not as organised as I should be. Anyway, um, you come to this show for professionalism. Professionalism. <laughs> you can't spell professionalism without armchair producers. Yeah. <laughs> And here we go. All right. Okay. And now a word from our sponsors. I'm going to have to turn the audio on here for a sec, I think. So this is the EV dangers of doing this in the same room. Feedback. Houston and our Wet, wet, wet and ocean. Tiffany and cheap drink. 88 kicks on cassette, CD and LP. Out now. 88 kicks on with and Ross. And LRB, Hesley and Ocean, Darby and Bulbas, Sabrina and Banana Rama, Ewan Liners and Cheap Drink. 88 kicks on, out now.
It will be the biggest event of Australia's bicentennial. It will be the major attraction in the world next year. It is the $600 million World Expo 88 in Brisbane. For six stunning months, you'll be able to experience the world's best ideas, inventions, entertainment. You'll marvel at the amazing new world in each pavilion. 40 countries, including the US, Russia, China, Japan, Australia, are waiting to dazzle you at every turn. You'll thrill to entertainment from every corner of the world. You'll gasp at the world's most daring acts on water and the world's most modern fun park. For day after day, for night after night, you'll want to return again and again to experience everything World Expo 88 has to offer. And Queensland is ready to accommodate you and your family in Brisbane or on the Gold or Sunshine Coasts. Book now for this once-in-a-lifetime experience, World Expo 88. Buy your tickets now and save. Three-day passes, $40 adults, $26 children and pensioners. You could win a Qantas family holiday at World Expo 88, April 30 to October 30. There you go. Um, legend. Oh, there we go. Give me feedback. There we go. So, um, live, 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 live recording. Call us with live shows. Uh, if you want to buy tickets, Expo88. Um, yeah. <laughs> you get in touch with um, Brisbane 30, 40 years ago. Yep. Yeah. And make sure you use the code 1331 onto the producer's rule. At checkout, and you'll get. And you uh, have a chance. You have a chance to win an answer flight to um to Brisbane. Um, <laughs> uh, anyway, I remember that. I remember wanting to go there. So about it, but the ADA keeps on was the first cassette tape I ever bought with my own money. Oh wow! Um, so that was good stuff. Prosper Castle, Bananarama. Um, anyway, I, <laughs> so, I think the 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 first cassette that I bought with my money was Michael Jackson's Bad. That's a pretty good effort. Pretty good record. Oh yeah, yeah. I, I, I used to have good taste before it got bastardized with Nickelback. I, I wanted to buy Poison. <laughs> open up and say "Ah, by Poison" as oh. the first record record. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, my mum said no because she thought that was satanic. Um, <laughs> which in hindsight is quite funny because those guys aren't cool enough to be satanic. Uh, but I think you had you wanted to talk about was it Death Note or? Um, Demon Slayer. Demon Slayer. Yes, Demon Slayer is season one is on Netflix. Um, the uh, there's um, a feature film as well that is available on Funimation. I think exclusively on Funimation, but you have to have a premium account to watch it. So if you are interested, but Death uh, Demon Slayer kind of got on my radar because a lot of people are talking about it, and um, there was a big article that I saw pop up about how Hayao Miyazaki, famed director and creator of Studio Ghibli, um, kind of surreptitiously in some way gave the show his blessing a little bit and said, yes, the animation is really good. And it fucking is. This is a beautifully animated series. I personally, I don't think it's really doing anything particularly um, new or revelatory, but... Um, 
it's a nice heartfelt thing, but the animation is absolutely stellar. It is stunning for the uninitiated. Um, let me pull up one of these summaries here. Um, a family is attacked by demons and only two members survive. Tanjiro and his sister Nezuko, who is turning into a demon slowly. Uh, Tanjiro sets out to become a demon slayer to avenge his family and to cure his sister. That is the very basic nuts and bolts of the story. And um, if you've ever watched any uh, young adult anime, I guess is a relatively good way of talking about it. It's, the first season is always about their training and then it's sort of like escalation every time going forwards and more revelations as they go. Um, it's a beautiful, beautiful animated show. It really successfully blends 2D and 3D animation to really do some unique things with this. Um, like demons have their um, it's like demon, individual demon powers. And there's one in particular that really took me is a demon in this house that has these um, drums kind of embedded into its flesh and you can hit them and morph the... The shape, the shape of the room around it and kind of twist it almost like a Rubik's Cube. And the way that the animation, the 2D animation of the characters and the 3D modeling kind of moves, it feels so jarring and it really puts you in the mindset of Tanjiro as he's trying to work out the fight pattern of this demon and how to, how to best slay him. Um, I didn't really want to go too far into it because honestly, not much happens in the first season. It is entertaining. There is that little bit of brevity, as is typical in a lot of um, manga turned into animes, where there's like a little bit, a little bit, but really comparatively none of the fan service, where it's like big tits and like that comical moment where they fall flat on their face and they're kind of squeezing the girl's breast, going, "What is that? It's soft." And I don't know what that is. And that kind of stuff. Blood spinning at their nose. Yeah, there's there's none of that extreme. Um, and the, it is just kind of Tanjiro and Nezuko in their first, well, the, the training uh, sequence goes over a long, technically over a long period of time, but I'd say that for lack of a better description, their first year, this is Batman year one for um uh, Demon Slayer, but the animation, if you really appreciate good quality animation and very good um, dubbing, particularly on this one. Do you watch the dub version? I've watched both variants because I haven't been able to sleep for a while, so I might as well. And um, Do you have a preference? For ease of watching, the English one is obviously easier and the quality of dubbing has greatly improved from like the 80s and 90s and early 2000s where it was just atrocious and I was talking to someone at work today about Sailor Moon and in the first um, the first run of Sailor Moon there's like six different actresses who did the voice of one of the characters but of course it's just so jarring and horrible this is taken far more seriously as a as an extension of the the anime lifespan but you're never really going to be able to beat the, um, the original dialogue, no matter what country it's come from, whether it's English language being dubbed into something else. I can never watch, if I'm watching a foreign film and, yeah. and Netflix is a dub available, I have to, it just puts, it's just, 
it's just a little bit off. Yeah, it's it's like having a three second frame delay, and it's just like okay, I can cope with this, but I really don't want to because I know that it's wrong. <laughs> it, yeah, just it's yeah, and I know a lot of people who are big on anime. Yeah, you uh, can be a real divide of the people. Yeah. They get kind of they get kind of possessive about it. No, no, you have to watch the original yeah. Japanese. Absolutely, uh, absolutely. That's hard to me. Um, I think that so, like as a show, because it's actually quite a simple show in regards to the lore that it is expecting you to kind of follow on. It is one that you can very easily just read the subtitles, listen to the, the genuine audio and be able to still enjoy it rather than feel like it's a labor of love to do. So um, if you're new into the, or if you want to get into the anime environment, or if you're hearing a lot about this, this is a really good, really good example of a good quality show that is not taxing in any way. So like all this lore is being thrown at you left, right, and center. There's a lot of explanation that is, it's not just exposition dump, this is Terminator-style exposition dump where there's always action to keep the pace going. Um, the animation, as I've said, ad nauseum at this point is stunning. It is really, really beautiful. Um, I look forward to actually watching the movie because the trailer looks bizarre and twisted, but again, stunning to watch, and I will happily watch anything that looks beautiful like that. Um, it's... It's. Um, I wouldn't say that it is young person friendly because it is violent. The demons are demons. They are portrayed as brutal demons. They are variations and bastardizations in some cases of kind of, I guess you could say, recorded demons from Japanese lore and like the idea of the yokai and things like that, that feeds into this a little bit. So they are, it would be like going, oh yeah, you like Cinderella, the Disney Cinderella, or one of the Hans Christian Andersen books that got vanillaized by Disney and it's going, yeah, here, read the Hans Christian Andersen version. It's very different. And it's a lot more brutal and scary. It portrays the world as a scary place. And that's what this does. It's not, out and out gore, bloodfest, death, and destruction at every turn, but it could be confronting for particularly young audiences. I'd say sort of like eight to ten year olds probably be okay with it, but younger than that, maybe steer clear or, or sit sit with them if you if you're the parent or the, the guardian of a child at that point. But otherwise, it's enjoyable. If if you like anime or if you want to have a quality entrance point, I would say this. Definitely falls into so you. You almost recommend it as an interest point for people who are a bit new to it. Yeah, yeah, definitely, because it's a it's a very simple story of two kids trying to right or wrong. That is their journey, and um, Neil Gaiman would say that um, the basis of this story is a man learns something, and he is learning how to be a better fighter to protect his family, which he failed at the beginning, and he is learning how to. Um, be better. That's his. That's his journey. It's he is hungry for that learning, and as everyone wants to learn and be better, it's a story that you can easily latch on to in one way or another. There you go. Yeah. Should we? I have a couple of things to talk about here. Uh, I want to 
we'll look back around with you in a sec on Tomorrow War. Yep. And quickly cover off a couple of things I've seen recently. What are you going to talk uh, about? Mad Max 2. Mad Max 2. Brand yeah. new movie. People who have been paying attention and watch regularly might remember a few weeks ago, mm-hmm. a few shows ago, yep. I talked about Mad Max. Mm-hmm. And what a strange mess of a movie that was for yeah. an acknowledged classic or a, a, sort of a spawned of quite the franchise because we're now up to four, maybe five soon when we get the Furiosa film, yeah. which with our man yet, Taylor Joy, is going to star in. Um, a good one, I think. I think so. Uh, Mad Max 2 is where it all began and what people don't, I think, realise is this film was released in the States before Mad Max. So Mad Max, I don't think, ever got a release in the US or a very, very limited one, whereas this one did was released as The Road Warrior in the United States, if I'm not mistaken, kind of blew up, and then Mad Max got released, and, like, because, you know, it was this, this little weird cousin of the much bigger, yeah. more successful one. Mad Max 2, in the post-apocalyptic strain wasteland, a cynical drifter agrees to help a small gasoline-rich community escape a horde of bandits. And here's the thing. That's complicated as it gets. Yeah. We meet Max. He is uh, more grizzled, more cynical now than in the last one, significantly less to say. Yeah, you know, the first one. This is where our almost almost mute hero um, comes to be, and you can you can you can see Tom Hardy. I think paid very very close attention to oh, yeah. to to Mel's performances, Max, uh, in this film because you, I mean I think I think Tom Hardy gets overlooked for that film because Charlie Theron is so good in it. And her character is so well written, and it's it's such a fun movie. People forget that he did a pretty good impersonation mm-hmm. of, of of Max in that mm-hmm. film. And so um, he meets Bruce Spence, who has a gyrocopter thing and oh. takes him prisoner. He yeah. has a very cool dog in this film, uh, and he uh, sort of wanders almost inadvertently into an ongoing conflict between uh, the uh, oil, sort of the gasoline rich little community. And uh, of course, gasoline, the gasoline, petrol, um, <laughs> petrol, right? Uh, and surrounded by, which is being basically laid siege to by this group of bandits who seem to be very interested in fetish wear. Um, <laughs> yep. There's a lot of leather on display, like collars and leather underpants and studded things. Hey, look, and when when the world collapses, we don't need to worry about clothing. It's just okay. <laughs> I, we, 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 I, we, Michelle and I watched this the other night because she never, she couldn't record us seeing it. She made the fair observation. You didn't, it is set in a desert. Mm-hmm. These guys aren't particularly well dressed for the desert. <laughs> I, th- I think it's the same rules that apply in the Mad Max universe as do for female armor in Skyrim. Yes, very much so. <laughs> um, and also some of the haircuts are like some, like, um, uh, Mohawks and stuff like that. Like fairly impractical hairdos for um, for the apocalypse, which is the apocalypse is actually a lot more obvious in this one. Whereas uh, we um, sort of noted when we talked about uh, first one was like they sort of go, oh yeah, it's, it's post-apocalyptic, and you sort of go, really? Is it though? Because not really a lot of apocalypse. It's just outback Australia. The first one's just kind of like, yeah, you don't really ever get a. Quite the impression of how where does the post-apocalyptic part come into it? Yeah. Other than the fact that this kind of allows you place to live, it could be fucking Newcastle, um, <laughs> you know, um, for all, or it could be Wembley. You saw what your um, ex-countryman uh, did for the weekend. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> so you know, um, you said none of them were wearing fetish gear. 
But interestingly, in their own way, they were. <laughs> interestingly, this film does have, uh, being filmed in 1982, it actually has a nice little nod towards the LGBT community in the sense that there is uh, a very strongly implied uh, same-sex relationship between one of the main villains and um, uh, another um, um, another one of the, the, the thugs. He's got a uh, the bad guys of the thug. He keeps him away. <laughs> he seems quite upset when Matt kills him. Um, so yeah. I wonder if that's LGBTQI appropriate or just a weird post-apocalyptic version of John Wick. <laughs> a little bit. I, I took it to me. He said, he, I think it's actually, I think at one point the, um, the real, the big bad, the humongous, says the humongous heart of something you love. I, I may have imagined that line. Um, but it's there, right? There is, I mean, it's in the bad guys. So, you know, but like quite, what a revolutionary little thing to do in in, in a low budget nineteen eighty two action movie to have oh, yeah, an implied male on male relationship, which kind of makes sense in the apocalypse, quite frankly, where yeah. women seem to be a little bit short on the ground, especially if you're hanging out with other um, bandits. Uh, one thing it does count against this film is the Rick and Morty episode where they are in the apocalypse and they, oh, the guy with the bucket on his head and he takes it off and he's got a weird haircut and it's sad. Um, and, yeah, I forget that. We couldn't stop watching it going, he's a little bit difficult to take Lord Humongous seriously. But he looks a lot Especially like... Especially the name. Sorry. Yeah. Uh, but Humongous, not Lord Humongous. Be Humongous. Um and he does look a lot like the character from a Rick and Morty episode. Yeah. So Rick and Morty have kind of, I mean, you give it a pass because like, obviously this is the original. Yeah. Um, but sometimes things are taken, uh, taken to care of something so effectively, it's, it can be difficult to, um, yeah. to see the original yeah. any other way. Um, the, this one does share some great um, similarities to Fury Road, apart from just Max's performance, the fact that it turns into a giant chase. Yeah. Uh, Max is basically put to work by the gasoline community to deal with the gasoline community to uh, go and uh, basically uh, pick up a skinny trailer, right, a truck trailer thing from at an at wasteland store, get started and bring it back into their community so that they can take a, um, a tanker of gas and to find their utopia up north or something, I think yeah. is the idea. Um, and then he, he does, so it's a couple of major set pieces here, just car chasing, which is what Mad Max is all about. you kind yeah. of got to yeah. put that in there because it's kind of what they do. Yeah. Um, but it's done incredibly effectively here. This film's not trying to be anything. It's not. It's made on a bigger budget than the last one, so it looks a lot better. It's much better written. You really get the impression that George Miller took the time between the two. It took Mad Max to make this. Mm -hmm. That was him learning how to make a movie. Yeah. He really refined his art in between that and this one. I mean, I think he just made that on the weekends when he could with what money he did. The story was he worked in the emergency rooms as a doctor. Yeah, that's To make money to make that first one. And then I think this is maybe him with some money now behind him, but maybe some professional help. Maybe he got a cinematographer this time as opposed to, you know, uh, a mate or something, you know. Um, 
it's it's really really an impressive. This one this one deserves its reputation. Yeah. Um, For me, the, um, the difference between Mad Max and Mad Max Two is a weird alternative variation of the difference between Evil Dead and Evil Dead Two, where it's a very very familiar story, but there's refinement in the director's narrative storytelling, and where obviously Evil Dead Two very much embraces more of the comedy side of things. This it's really invests and gets and cuts a lot of the cheese factor out, the riddle of the first Mad Max. And, you know, it's just reading here um, that uh, Max has like 17 lines in the whole film and two of them are the same line. <laughs> so, like, okay, yep. You just telling story by showing in this instance. Whereas in the in the first one, there was a lot more kind of exposition and attempt at telling this story and this relationship. You just see it in this one. It's it's a, a director who has obviously got more understanding of his craft. Just to note, the director of photography on this film is Dean Sammer. Um, don't know who that is. He is an Academy Award winner um, for might have won for. Um, Dance with Wolves? He did. That's cinematography of Dance with Wolves. Uh, you know, lit there with Mel Gibson. Yeah, I know he's persona non grata now. That's a fucking great movie. He did Dead Calm, which is again another Australian classic. He's done a lot of shit. Um, <laughs> but he's he's a very professional. He's a, yeah. He, can, he's he knows a, how to shoot. He knows how to make a film look good. Um, so. Uh, I he did not do the first one, so uh, he is an Australian. Yeah. So um, I think this is one of his early real big breakouts for him as well. So I think some stuff like that helps. Having the money to be able to hire actual pros really yeah. helps. So if you haven't, it's it's available on Stan in, in Australia. Uh, you know what? I had to go the other way. So the first one's on Stan. This you're gonna have to rent other places. I'm yeah. sorry. Um, quickly. Destination Wedding. I said I was going to talk about it. You And I'm going to do it. So I had this film suggested to me by somebody who owns it on TV, DVD. Mm-hmm. DVD, by the way, is a shiny plastic disc you put inside a, a reader that looks a bit like an Xbox, but it's not an Xbox. It is not a coaster. <laughs> <laughs> um, it could be. In some cases, it may more be. They may be more appropriately used as coasters. This is a strange film. Now, I had heard of this film before, and I was like, I went in going, okay, I'm expecting something on the level of Love Actually, Four Weddings and a Funeral, How to Lose a Guy in 10, guy in ten Days, My Best Friend's Wedding, kind of level of, okay. of schmaltzy wedding-based rom-com. Right. This is more like something, what was that Andy Samberg on Palm Springs? Okay. This is not in the time travel. It's not have a time loop. But I would say Palm Springs is set around a wedding. Yeah. But it's a fairly cynical film set around yeah. a wedding. This is an incredibly cynical film. Okay. So the story of two miserable and unpleasant wedding guests, Lindsay and Frank, develop mutual affection despite themselves. Uh, we have Winona Ryder and Keanu Reeves playing uh, Lindsay and Frank. They That's the main this film together since Dracula. I, I think, think so. I think one of the main selling points of this film is it's put those two together yeah. again after all these years. And you can tell they love working together. Yeah. And I think potentially maybe that was what they wanted to do was something to work on. Yeah. Um, it is directed, directed by Victor Levin, okay. who you may not be familiar with, but 
Probably the most interesting thing for me about him is he was involved in writing a, a great number of episodes of producing Mad About You in the oh, 90s. shit, okay. She also did some stuff on Mad Men and mm-hmm. a lot of other television. Mm-hmm. Uh, not, a lot of, not a lot of feature films. Okay. Now, people don't know Mad About You. Like, in the Great War of 90s sitcoms, it's the... It's, it's, it's a few back in the pack a little bit behind Frasier, but well <laughs> behind the Simpsons and Seinfeld. And, and Friends. Seinfeld and Friends are kind of the great, yeah, the, the, yeah, the, uh, the Celtic and Rangers of 90s sitcoms, if you will. <laughs> um, there's a Scottish soccer drink for you, I'm worldly. Um, but uh, it's, it was a very dry, cynical-ish, more in the Seinfeld camp than in the yeah. Friends camp. Um, I think it actually was somehow linked to Seinfeld initially. I remember Kramer was in an episode to start. Yeah, so, yeah. Um, so it's more like that. So it's a fairly dry, cynical comedy itself. And that's what this is. These two people are fucking nihilistic misanthropes. Like, I should hand in my commudging card compared to these guys. Like, <laughs> seriously, I, I, I have a new idol in life and this Griana Riggs is Frank. In they are basically, so Frank is the brother of the group and Lindsay is the ex-girlfriend of the group. Neither of them like him very much. They probably have nothing but contempt for this guy. And they've both been kind of invited as a fuck you um, to a destination wedding, which is being held in the wine country of Southern California, I think, somewhere. Yeah, they like it from the poster, yeah. They meet on the plane at the airport on the way in, and they take an instant dislike to each other. But being, they kind of bond over their, their mutual dislike of um, the, the, the groom and their cynical cynicism towards the bride. And their general, you know, cynicism towards life in general. Okay. Um, and they sort of end up sort of spending quite a bit of time together. So it's like they don't really seem to like each other very much. Um, are you, are you, is it kind of played along the lines of the early relationship between Harry and Sally? Harry no, and Sally? not that funny. Okay. Um, think, well, this is a weird thing for me, that, that this film is not badly written. Mm-hmm. Some things that are, this, is, this didn't get this film entirely successful for me. Mm. One, the title is terrible. Because <laughs> like instantly that title, Destination Wedding, thinks you're getting a wedding rom-com movie. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, like I said, My Best Friend Wedding or something, the Julie Roberts film. Yeah. You're not getting that. So if you went and saw this film, a lot of people, I think, would have felt sure changed. Yeah. Because they're not getting the film, they thought they were getting there. would have probably caught me, at least a bad word of mouth. So they needed a much better title than that. I don't know. I think it was this, an alternative title called Narcissus Never Dies. Um, the movie, like, yeah, a narcissist can't die because the, then the entire world will end. This is the, the movie's alternative title. That's not good either. Yeah. Um, they probably should engage someone to come up with a better title. <laughs> the second thing they got wrong, and this is a weird thing, because the film's main attraction, is the stars are wrong for this material. They both thought they're having a great time yeah. being playing a completely against type, especially Keanu. Yeah. Um, being a, a, a cynical, sexless, misanthropic curmudgeon who basically hates life, yeah. but you look like that. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, and, you know, you know, the writer, they, you know, I mean, you think of a character from uh, Beetlejuice was kind of dark and gothic, but yeah. nihilistic, misanthropic, I don't think no, so. No, it doesn't quite fit. She's quite... always had this element of publiness to her. Even, I mean, the, the closest that I can think of her kind of in taking that kind of role is like Black Swan. A little bit. Um, 
Needless to say, I don't think the material suits it. Yeah. It certainly doesn't suit Keanu. Um, and while they aren't bad at it, you know, sometimes you can see someone who goes, oh, I want to do this, this is different, right? And this is a little indie film you can do in between two and week films, so probably took two weeks to shoot it. You know, but uh, this is not, these are not the right people to be doing this kind of thing. Who would be? The initially, the first thought I had, we know the writer's character should 100% have been played by Julia Louis-Dreyfus. Okay. Uh, 100%. <laughs> if there's anybody in Hollywood who could pull up... wearing a standby hat, ladies and gentlemen. Although, I mean, it, 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 it wouldn't be a stretch for her, right? Yeah. It's not far from Elaine or Selena in Veep. Yeah. You know, it's cynical, misanthrope. That's kind of what Elaine was. Yeah. Um, and, I mean, she'd have done this in her sleep and she would have murdered it. Yeah. Frank's character, the first person I thought it was Larry Davis. He's too old, but, <laughs> you know, he is that kind of level of cynicism that he yeah. pulls off in um, Curve Your Enthusiasm or he's, he's writing for Seinfeld yeah. earlier on as um, he, being the basis of um, George. Um, it's a younger Jason Alexander again. I'm sorry to go back to this. It is a little bit of George and Elaine in this, you know. Okay. Um, those two would have something could done something, they would have done it a lot better. But obviously they do not have anywhere near star power or the box office draw of, of, of a Keanu and, and whatever. So obviously you probably those two say by someone wants to do your twenty million dollar picture, yeah. You're probably gonna go okay. Yeah. So I don't know what it will at least cover their costs. I don't know what the budget was or anything like that. I'm just taking a step and saying it, it probably wouldn't have cost a lot to make, I don't think. Yeah. Uh it, it's a short little film. So it's fine in a way. Like I actually kind of snicket sometimes at how dark the jokes were, and I kind of enjoyed that. Okay. But it just didn't quite coalesce into a thing, okay. you know, that it could have been because it was just like I said, the title was, would have put me well off, and I just don't think the stars were quite right for the film that they were casting. It had a budget of $5 million, so obviously Keanu is working below Probably scale. And uh, took a box office of 2.2 million. So, yeah, official mm. bomb. A bomb. Um, it just, yeah. Uh, I, I don't even know if I remember hearing about it, but you see this, you see this at the cinema. Mm. Now, yeah. Uh, yeah. Have, like, as a kind of like a start, does it, does it try to wear that bleak comedy on its sleeve or is it more hidden, like something like Before Sunrise, Before Sunset, where it's... Almost that that movie can, has almost accidental funny moments in it, but it's just this this burgeoning um, romance between the two. Um, is is this trying to be a bleak comedy? I have to imagine it is. Okay. It's not. Uh, I haven't seen those films, um, really but it's. Um, I mean, they're constantly dunking on themselves, each other, the groom, the bride, their fa- extended families. It's. Everyone's fodder for, for a dark joke or okay, okay. And, and it's not not it's not it's it's more sly than you know. It's not got the tongue in cheek of Palm Springs. It's not, it's not like yeah, it's not Andy Samberg, yeah. you know, uh, level of comedy. It's um, it's it's a lot darker. But it's a little more sly is the word. It'd be like it'd be you know a, a through conversation. Mm-hmm. Think again, Seinfeld, right? Yeah. Level of. You know, it, you know, not Jerry landing punchlines on people. It'd be like them sitting opposite each other uh, in the diner talking. That quick wit. The kind of wit, you know, my mother called me, doing what? You know, I was alone. Um, you know, that kind of level of humour, right? Okay. Um, as opposed to, 
you know, joke, you know, response yeah. kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and, you know, in a way, I kind of enjoyed your cynicism, but you didn't quite coalesce into it. You did something you, you quite got right. right. It's, just, it's hard to take someone as likable as, as Keanu and make him, like I said, a, a cynical yeah. uh, Mrs. Burger who hates himself in life. Yeah. Um, Larry David, you go, yeah, yeah, I can't buy that. Yeah, I can't buy that. You know, yeah, I think that's why he's just seems like a cool guy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so it was, it's, it's an interesting one because it is coming to the back door and give you something you didn't quite expect. But okay. Yeah. Uh, so look, I would say it's better than you think it's going to be. Okay. Um, and I would say this is the kind of wedding movie you watch when you've just broken up with someone, probably. <laughs> so, yeah, I made the right choice. <laughs> Pretty much. This is the, the wedding film for divorcees. <laughs> There's definitely a market for that, I'm sure. I'm sure. I told you I would squeeze it in. Uh, we, we're getting a little on there, too. Do you want to spend five minutes on, um, on um, Tomorrow Wars? Tomorrow War? Yeah, let's talk about that. Anything else we can say for, for next time? All right, so Tomorrow Wars, the new big-budget Amazon Prime video extravaganza with Chris Pratt playing Lance Everyman. I mean, um, Chris Pratt. I mean, uh, Dan Forrester. Um, in a sci-fi movie where they, through a very obvious, like in the middle of a big game, there is the revelation of time travel and people from 30 years in the future come back and somehow all of the governments seem to very quickly kind of go, yeah, we believe them to the point where we're going to reenact conscription across the whole world and send people en masse into the future to fight in this war where we're being told we're already losing. Um, That's basically during the World Cup final. Yeah. People from the future. So, hey, in the future, we're always been invaded by aliens. We fucking lost. We need you to start helping us by sending soldiers mm-hmm. using our time travel technology mm-hmm. to the future to help us fight the war against the aliens. Yep. First thing I thought of, mm-hmm. what do we know? Time travel exists. Yep. There are aliens who are going to start turning up about 30 years from now, mm-hmm. start killing people, mm-hmm. and they're pretty badass. And there's probably half a million people left alive in the world. Yep. When these time travelers get sent back, yep. Why would we then send people to them to fight? Mm-hmm. Why wouldn't we just figure out roughly whereabouts they land mm-hmm. or come from here? Yep. And then just have a massive standing army of about three million people with tanks and bombs and if we if they can organize. Um, essentially, for lack of a better descriptor, a unified Earth to conscript everyone, to, to send them off, why can they go, okay, instead of sending them all off, you're being conscripted and you're going to fucking find as much as you can. We are going to invest in trying to actually stop this before it ever fucking happens. So, you know, so we don't lose all these people. The, the film's conceit is, oh, well, we don't really know where they came from. I never found this spaceship or anything like that. But we know they came in Russia. Mm-hmm. Russia is a very big place. Yes. But you can have like satellites and surveillance whole worlds out there with metal detectors. <laughs> I don't know, like standing there waiting. You know when they're going to turn up? Uh, and make nets and catch them. My favorite thing is why would you send people in the future to fight them? Why would you sit around and wait for them to turn up yeah. and just get ready? Like, I actually yeah. had some conversations with people online about this and I'm like, 
why wouldn't it should have some sort of technology where it can help us be like, oh, nah, ah, uh, you saw in the future, they're pretty fucked, or like, no, so they invented time travel in the next 30 years and nothing else of use, apparently. Well, there is a throwaway line where it's like, even this, if we had the people and the time, this wouldn't be out of guinea pig test phase. It's like, okay, fair enough. And I do like the fact that they have this ticking time of it can only be 30 years and as time progresses in the future, that point where they're sending people moves back forward. moves forward. I do like that. There's some cool ideas about the time travel here, but, but they don't really do anything with, with it. it. And they never really answered for me that central question. Why are you sending it to the future to fight in a world where there are fucking 50 million aliens in the world? The war's basically over. Yeah. Why aren't they sending it? I was like, oh, the last half a million people, let's send them back. Now, as much information as we can, and then they leave the investigation. And we just have people sitting and watching everywhere in Russia waiting for them to turn up, and we'll be ready for those fuckers. But yeah. They never actually answer that question other than, oh, we don't know really where we're turning up. Yeah. But anyway, that was the first thing I thought, and that put me on straight away. Yeah. The next we see, but basically, um, uh, Chris Pratt's character, Dan, is a high school teacher now, but he's a former soldier. Yes. And one of the interesting conceits for stories, he is chosen to be sent forward to the future to fight because by that point in time in the future, he, he had died. Yes. But there's still like half a million people left alive. I think he actually said that at some point. Yeah. Like, uh, that means pretty much everybody's dead. Yeah. So you could be able to send pretty, pretty much everybody. But they didn't talk about that. They no. made a big deal out of the fact he dies in five years or something yeah. after the film's... And so he can be sent forward. He and some reason like, oh, the soldiers are well, we're not soldiers. So we started sending civilians. Yeah. And so he and a bunch of other civilians are conscripted. They're sent to a room. They're basically given like a day or two days training. And then, then oh, shit, you're going down the future. You need to go and fight now. And I'm like, yeah. What? Why? If you imagine, like, We've been sending soldiers and that didn't really work. So there's so many breaks of logic. It's like, okay, we already know that the enemy is formidable. So we want to send people into the future to protect. Like, okay, so instead of just metering out the people who know what they're doing as soldiers, as trained members, mixing some of the civilians in so that they can help maybe increase the chances of survival. I don't know. Um, no, we're going to send them all in at the start. They're going to get massacred. It's like, oh, fuck, ragtag team. Um, uh, Wolverines! Yeah, <laughs> uh, untrained people. They won't even tell. They can't even see pictures of the aliens in training. Because they go, oh, we reckon if you guys saw pictures of them, you would want to go. I'm like, I don't think they want to go anyway. But like, they, they, they give them this fucking, like, arm... Um, Band thing that will automatically send them back once they've completed their tour of duty, and that like if you try and run, we'll know and you'll die, and we'll arrest your family and all the people you love. It's like okay, so there's you've kind of cut off every loophole there, so why not just fucking show them the alien? Well, the reason is because the film wants to hold off you showing you what the aliens look like. Mm-hmm. When they do get to the future, mm-hmm. the first reveal of the alien is kind of cool. Yeah. I'll give it that. And yeah. the first time you see the aliens, you're like, oh, that's kind of cool. I like how they've done that. They do look kind of scary. Yeah. The more you look at them, the sillier they get. Yeah. Um, and they probably should have shown as less alien. Yes. And as the story goes on um, in the future with the aliens, they can, they can do whatever the script needs them to do. You know, yeah. like, 
We're flying squirrels. They can fly. They can be bulletproof. They, they can, can swim. They can shoot hundreds of people. Yeah. And they are very obviously shown as being brutes, as being animals. And so you very quickly go, how do they control a spaceship? Hmm. How do they get here then? Hmm. Well, of course, the only person who invented that turns out to be um, Chris Pratt's, uh, Dan Forrest's wife, played by uh, Betty Gilbert, who is criminally underused in this film. Yes, Betty Gilbert, 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 Gilbert was, was in, in Glow. Uh, yeah. She was in uh, The Hunt, um, which I just came out last year, which you haven't seen. I really yeah, I, I want to check She's that good out. in that. She's a badass in that. So Betty Gilbert, severely underused. Mm-hmm. Anyway, in the future, Dan meets Colonel Forrest. And Colonel Jasper, oh, he's a little daughter from the start of a movie. Didn't see that come. Played by Yvonne Strahovski, the Australian actress from Hammer's Tale. Uh, she's fine. But, you know, they're, they're hunting, doing science in the future so they can create a, a toxin to, to, to kill. successfully kill the females because the males... They already can kill a male, but they can't yeah. kill the females. Yeah. And they do some science to, so they can kill the females. And then, of course, because the film needs it to happen, mm-hmm. the, the, the secret uh, ocean base gets invaded by mm-hmm. uh, monsters and... Ridiculous swarm of them. It's like, okay. It's, but a bit is, I guess, supposed to be exciting, but it just annoyed me. I'm like, they can, as you sort of said, they can swim hundreds of miles, kilometres an hour. They, they keep on kind of going that they have ex- uh, extreme levels of smell and things like that. It's like, okay... And the, the premise, getting into spoilers, I guess, um, they manage to capture a female and they take it to this offshore, basically like a, a, a reconstituted oil rig. And there's like doing all of the slow overtime father-son bonding. I think it's a tour of seven days that he has to complete. If he dies before then, tough shit. If uh, completion of seven days, it'll automatically, wherever he is in the world, we're going to teleport him back. And of course, she starts off by saying, Oh, I'm not interested in, um, you know, us getting back together and things like that. And there's a throwaway line where Chris Pratt goes, Oh, what's that smell? She's like, Oh, it's something that she secretes. Like, Oh, that's not important at all. No. Um, But it's in this closed room in the middle of the ocean. And they can smell it. They, they all, apparently all of the males can smell it. So they're all just on mass time. And it's, it's weird how they manage to convene so that they all attack at once as well. It's not so like, oh, well, the ones on this island are gonna, literally going to be closer, so they're going to get there sooner. No, they all, for cinematic effect, come all at once. And what it does seem in the movie for me, and there are many, yeah, um, the, you know, they, they finish their toxin and he's got to wait for his time to run out and he's, he's disbanded, be able to travel back to the present with the toxin. Yeah. Um, you know, they're trying to run away from the monsters and eventually at one point uh, they run out of space and his daughter sort of falls off a um, off a, oh, off a, a gangway, a gangway yeah. and into, and also it's supposed to be a, it's just an artistic shot that just looks stupid to me. You just see the monsters underneath it. Yeah. You can see in slow motion of her reaching up like that. And of course, Chris Pratt, humanity's last greatest hope to, to survive is, is to jump in after her. Yep. 
I don't know what he was hoping he did. He just jumps in after. He's, he's dead, right? You're, he's being a good father, man. Uh, like, fortunately, of course, the plot spoilers, you know, you know shock and horror, he doesn't die. Mm-hmm. Um, he's doohickey, takes him back in time to yep. avoid being killed by the monsters. Um, and when you get back, the film changes tack in front of the prison. Yeah. You know, at that point in time, all of a sudden, it sort of stops being... It becomes the Goonies. It does. The time travel thing sort of stops and goes away. Yep. Um, and the world governments have given up working it together, and there's just mass rioting and looting. And so these organizations that have been sending people, millions and millions of people, off into the future to certain death, then go, oh, no, we can't help you at all. So you're going to have to make a ragtag team of this fellow teacher, this school kid that just so happens to be ridiculously um, in love with volcanoes, which of course becomes important because we saw that in the beginning, um, as well as bringing in Chris Pratt's dad, J.K. Simmons, always great, um, as James Forrester. And it's like, okay, okay. But the thing is that, the film basically goes, well, actually, one of the main protagonists, the film now really heavily involves the character's dad, J.K. Simmons, mm-hmm. who we have barely seen. We've met once, an hour or so earlier in the picture. Mm-hmm. And you see, once you remember J.K. Simmons, isn't it? you're like, they, they had J.K. Simmons in this. Yeah. And they used him for that. For, for like half an hour of screen time. Yeah. Like, wow, that is criminal. Yeah. Like, and he is cutting it. Yeah, I think this was filmed when he was kind of working out for being um, Commissioner Gordon. And, um, yeah, that sort of like side hustle that he was going to be this really buff, just cut, deadly Gordon. He's just sort of like, finally, I get to show off my body a little bit in this movie. I just, I don't understand how you did, why you didn't use him more, but like, all of a sudden, he becomes a very important character. Yeah. By the fact we don't know really very much about him over that one scene earlier in the film, mm-hmm. and coming and back, position up. Cut to them now going, Betty Gilpin basically figuring out, huh, we never saw where they landed. What if they were here all along? And of course, that comes a little bit, comes in this global warming message about yeah. them falling out. And every clue about everything is so painfully obvious. It's like, oh, yeah, the, this kid in my class is obsessed with volcanoes. Sure, that's not going to come back to me. Oh, that guy, he keeps coming back and uh, doing repeat tours of duty. Why have you got a talon around your neck? Mm, that's not going to be important at all. It's just... You see some very, very sketchy logic. Yeah. They figure out where in Russia they might have been. And... And it just gets dumber. When they find, sorry, spoilers here, if you don't want to know what happens at the end, tune out now, we'll talk to you next time. But they find where the crash spaceship is, and all of a sudden it's aliens and the thing mm-hmm. is a is swearing thing. All the way That's through, exactly. I was feeling the time travel vibe, I was feeling very Edge of Tomorrow. Yeah, like a sheet. Like we've got yeah. Edge of Tomorrow at home, and, you know, dollar store, you know, <laughs> we should be Edge of Tomorrow. This is Pedge of Tomorrow. Yeah, I know a genuine story when I see one. <laughs> um, it's very cheap, Pedge of Tomorrow. But now it's all of a sudden, the crash spaceship is very thin yeah. uh, and a little bit alien. Yeah. Uh, aliens, um, yeah. again, films significantly better than this. Mm-hmm. And they're like, oh, well, we've got the toxin. So he's going to go in and 
stab all the fucking aliens that are in the spaceship with the toxin film that way. I'm like, what's the first thing I would think of is like put enough C4 in there to blow a hole in the center of the earth and just go walk a couple of days away and go click. Yeah. And then go back over and see if there's anything that needs to be cleaned up, right? Yeah. But, and that's what they end up doing, of course, because they fuck it up. Yep. And a bunch of aliens get out. Yep. And then they go, oh, no, we have to blow it up. Mm-hmm. And you're like, why do you need to do it in the first place? It's a sensible thing to do. Why would you try and go in and do you know, your ragtag team yeah. of you know, ho- hopeless people trying to stab? You know, it, it's just, I know, it's looking at that. The crazy thing is, people online saying about how clever and how fun and exciting this is. I'm like, I well, don't get how they think it's well, I, I mean, it's not, it's, well, I was bored. Yeah. I was, I was very bored. And I just thought that it always skips in logic. You're going, why would you do that? Why wouldn't you just do the simple thing? Yeah. Why would you stand with the toxin? Why wouldn't you just blow them up? Yeah. Why wouldn't you take pictures and video and upload it to YouTube yeah. and then wait for the government to come in and go, oh, actually, now that it's on YouTube and everybody knows that they're here, yeah. we'll mute the fuck out of the place or you'll send a platoon of soldiers. Like, yeah. Why would you do this? And now they're talking about a sequel and it's like, okay. So it's probably going to be that there was another one that escaped and survived and it was a female and it happened to, it's going to lay some eggs and that's how it's going to still continue on and they're still going to end up like, yay, it's all over. Let's let's do a little bit of Terminator 2 where it's like, oh, it's the end. Um, it finished in Terminator 1 and now suddenly it's going after, uh, it's just repeating again, but this time it's slightly different. It's like, oh, for fuck's sake, no, no. And if Chris Pratt's character is like, no, we changed it. We changed the future. This can't be it. I'm going to shoot someone at Amazon. Well, Amazon paid Paramount $200 million for this. I believe the idea was that this was going to go to cinemas. Yeah. And from what you hear, a lot of people have ended up watching this on on, on the Amazon uh, Prime platform. So any Amazon over it's worth their, worth their while. Yeah. Um, it seems to have made a bit of an impact in the... Yeah. Uh, apparently people are like, oh, no, like the politics involved now again because apparently people are like, Anti Chris Pratt because apparently he's a, a full on Christian or something. I'm like, I had no idea. There, and, there was something that he said a while ago and it's just been drenched up again. It's like, oh, actually, you're taking that a little bit out of context, but okay, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna debate you. I, I, I don't care what he does when he's not working. He's a good actor. I like him. I thought he was good in, um, good in the um, Guardians films. I liked him in Passengers. I liked um, him in uh, Jurassic World movie. Um, I I think that this was one of his most boring roles because well, he's, he's, not, he's not. He usually plays up a, a, a lighthearted character. Yeah. He's here. He's playing straight man. Yeah, and he's he looks bored um, as well. He doesn't have anyone to kind of play off. To to yeah, the comic relief, and he was sort of supposed to be done by Sam Richardson. Yeah, he plays Charlie, but he doesn't got a lot of screen time. Oh no, he doesn't. And they like when they're kind of going, they for when they go back in time, uh, well, forward in time, um, they go in and it instantly becomes like this um, attempt at exfiltration with, with these important vials. And the way that it's shot and um, the choreography of the sequence of him just kind of going through it's so like, okay, they're trying to do like genuine squad tactics and things like that, but they're not playing up that innocence of the people that they don't know the 
the terminology and how to actually do this. And it's just, it's just left kind of nebulously kind of androgynous. And it's, it just doesn't feel right. It's like, okay, are you trying to be serious or are you trying to just be an action movie? In which case you're failing at both because the story is not strong enough for a serious story and is certainly not funny. So what are you, what are you trying to do? It, it feels like there's been, it, it kind of feels like the type of movie that's been, had too many chefs playing with it, you know? Um, yeah, I it's, I, I, it's, I, I don't know, I think kind of stunned. It's a little bit like Army of the Dead. A lot of people said how much fun they had with that, how much they enjoyed that. And I was just sort of going, huh, well, I thought it was kind of crappy. And I was, again, it felt like very much like that. It's like, oh, this sounds cool. I'm looking forward to it. It's too long. There's none, as you, all the things you just said, I 100% agree with. It's, it's a weak story. It constantly, you know, breaks logic and makes you go, huh, why would you? And uh, it's, Really not a very good film for me. I thought it was pretty poor. Yeah. Disappointing from Chris McKay, the director who I think directed the Lego Batman movie, which a lot of people really enjoyed. Yeah. I didn't. But um, he also did some work at the Lego movie, which is, again, pretty good. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, here's, here's one of the, the top what uh, top used or, like, um, viewed quotes from the movie, dialogue is. James Forrest and Dan Forrest and this just dialogue. Did you tell it to die? Yeah, it worked. Why didn't you tell it sooner? Hilarious. Um, sure, sure. I don't care. Just finish, please. Yeah, not good. Not good. Not good. Very, very good. I, if you want to check it out, please do just set your expectations to low. Yes. A hundred percent. That's a long show. I guess that yeah. us, the we, we yeah. will um, be talking about um, what did I do? Bullet for our chain movie of the week. We won't have a Disney show for quite a while. Heaven forbid. Yeah, I think the next one is going to be Hawkeye, and the stuff that I've seen of that, I am not interested whatsoever. You got Disney Plus, so you'll probably watch it anywhere, right? Well, it's, I'm not paying Disney any money for anything. Um, <laughs> I, I'm now refusing <laughs> because they are just destroying cinema. I've, I've said too much about them in the past. Yeah, uh, well, I mean, yes, we have, I think we'll probably get a movie before we get a new TV show. We'll get, we get either Shang-Chi or The Eternals for this next thing. Oh, yeah. I, I think that's supposed to be that. october november yeah. dates for, for those yeah. for those films. Um, so, But, you know, you... you you probably are sick and tired of hearing us yammer on about Marvel and Disney. I will give you some potential homework. So um, I mentioned to you about the show Resident Alien, and I think you should give it a try because whilst it is a different type, of, it's quite different to Brain Dead that I previously suggested to you. It's kind of got it it feels a little bit similar to that in its style Woo, sci-fi yeah um it's not a great show but there's something about it okay and if you don't like it within the first 20 minutes don't bother watching it how do we watch uh, uh it is on nine 
nine. Yeah, so uh, it is. They've got their free streaming app, uh, nine now. You do have to watch some adverts, and you'll get Love Island UK. And it's like, well, why are they filming all of this with lots and lots of sunlight? There's no sunlight in there. <laughs> Stop it. I uh, I just happened to notice on my television for some reason that Channel Seven has disappeared, and it probably disappeared quite some time ago, and I didn't notice. Uh, uh, I don't know why it has, but I don't really care. Um, so I will use their their free app for the. I think it might be the first time I've ever used one of the uh, freeware catch up apps in Australia. To, yeah. To... But um, yeah, there's there's something endearing about it, and it's not an out and out comedy, but it's. It, it, it has got some funny elements to it. So I'd be interested to, to get, get a little bit of your take on that. Okay, I'll see. I am moving house this week. Um, so if we manage to get the show off the ground um, next week, you, this will be the last time you see this room. So <laughs> bon voyage to this yeah. latest... Um, the latest iteration of Electric Hand Sandwich Studios. Studios. They change annually. It's a kind of tradition. <laughs> Not one I enjoy. No. But, you know, we'll... Melbourne real estate, what can you do? Exactly. <laughs> real estate in the time of COVID. <laughs> On that note, ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for uh, watching along with us. We do appreciate it. Please remember to subscribe to our Twitch channel if you can. If you've got uh, a Prime account, you can use your free Twitch Prime account and it just gets us a little bit of notification. Make sure you like us on Facebook, on YouTube, youtube.com slash The Fried Brain, where you can watch all the shows um, immediately after we've aired live, as well as on all podcast channels. Um, just let us know as well. If there's a movie, TV show, music, books, anything that you think we should uh, give a try and you want to hear our thoughts on it, Give us a shout out on any of those platforms. Fried Brain Productions is on Facebook. Um, you can tweet at us, the Fried Brain. Um, and yeah, so it's easy to get through to us. And we would love to have a bit more interaction with you guys. So thank you very much. Good night. Good night.